I got to spend a month in North Cascades National Park in Washington State with five other high school kids. This was between my junior and senior year of high school. And I spent a month in the backcountry, never saw a road for a month, never saw an electrical outlet for a month. We were camped out the entire time. And it really was that sort of turning point. Welcome to Who Runs This Park, a podcast where you are invited into the hearts and stories of those who have committed their careers to the protection and preservation of our great national parks. Who Runs This Park aims to be a catalyst for inspiration, highlighting all that goes into managing our national parks and building a sense of appreciation for the invaluable beauty, diversity, and history of our protected lands. Today, we're joined by Kevin Schneider, superintendent of Acadia National Park, with his extensive experience across many of our most famous parks, namely the Grand Tetons, White Sands, Yellowstone, his work in D.C. for the National Park Service Office of Communications, and almost nine years as Acadia superintendent. We get a front row seat into his journey leading into where he is today and insights into Acadia National Park itself. Also, for those who are not aware, Acadia is located up in Maine with stunning woodlands lined up against rocky beaches and glaciers scored granite peaks such as Cadillac Mount, which is the highest peak in the U.S. East Coast. Let's jump in. Kevin, welcome to Who Runs This Park. Hi, Maddie. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. A way that I like to start off these conversations is kind of understanding some of the more unique situations you've had in the National Park Service. Um, so I'd love to hear about one of the more unique or crazy stories you've had as Acadia superintendent. Well, I think for me, best times working and living in national parks is getting to be in those national parks. And so actually spending time in the field, in the parks, with our park visitors, you know, going out on hikes. For me uh, in Acadia, I'm a runner. So on the weekends, I'm often on the park's carriage roads running. And, you know, it's, I think it's really important as a manager that uh, I'm also a visitor in the parks. And I have that same experience that our visitors do. I think it really helps me better understand the issues that the park is facing, the dynamics our visitors are facing. So, you know, those are the most memorable experiences, whether it's early morning run on a Sunday on 4th of July, perhaps on Acadia's carriage roads, or, you know, backpacking in Grand Teton National Park with some of my coworkers to, to visit sites in the backcountry, um, you know, spending time at White Sands and, and being part of the discovery of human footprints that are some 20,000 years old at White Sands wow. National Park. Um, you know, those are those are the kinds of things that really is what keeps me going is being out in the field. Yeah, that's, it's cool. I can even see kind of in the way you talk about it, how much joy being outside brings you. And so it's cool to see that in just the way you get excited about it. I do, I went to Acadia a couple of years ago and got to run, I think Eagle Lake Road, if I'm right. recalling that correctly. Um, sure. And yeah, they're great, beautiful trails. So I would imagine that's a great thing to be able to do. Yes. I saw that, I believe it was in high school, you got to volunteer with the Student Conservation Association. And my understanding is that that was a pretty pivotal experience, kind of giving that exposure to, like you said, being in nature, being immersed and all of that. So I'd love to hear a little bit about, I guess, why you chose to do that and how you feel it charted your career course within the Park Service. Yeah, I was fortunate. You know, the Student Conservation Association was an incredible opportunity for me. 
and did not necessarily grow up visiting national parks as a kid. And certainly growing up in the suburbs of Chicago, didn't have a lot of access Mm -hmm. to national parks on a regular basis. But I became interested in the outdoors, sort of as that, as a way in high school that a lot of kids in high school are sort of, you know, um, dealing with the changes in their lives. The outdoors was a sort of a refuge for me and a place that was a, a good escape. And so I got a camera spent time at some of the protected areas around the city of Chicago photographing. And, and I like to say in Chicago, you can photograph things. You can take pictures of people because there's all yeah. kinds of interesting <laughs> people. Uh, you can take pictures of architecture and the built environment. Chicago has great architecture. Or you can take pictures of nature. And I was really drawn to nature photography. It was never even really a choice for me. And so that's what led me to sort of get exposed to it. And the SCA kind of appeared for me as almost as a lark, like someone had mentioned it. And this was long before the days of the internet. And so I wrote uh, SCA a letter, if you can imagine that. And I said, your program sounds very interesting. Can you please send me more information? So they sent me the catalog, the volunteer opportunities. And that created a, again, this was before the internet. So I, I took that catalog to the library. Oh my I, gosh. I sort of paired places, which all of which were pretty far that I was attracted to in the West and started looking at books about those places to figure out where might I want to, you know, apply to to volunteer. And so I got to spend a month. I was fortunate enough to be selected. I got to spend a month in North Cascades National Park in Washington State with five other high school kids. This was between my junior and senior year of high school. And I spent a month in the backcountry, never saw a road for a month, never saw an electrical outlet for a month. We were camped out the entire time. And it really was that sort of turning point where I said, you know, this is what I want to do for my career. And then from that point on, it's kind of all history. But the SCA was, was really a great experience. And I think having that kind of an experience as a young adult is really, really healthy, whether it's SCA or another similar kind of program, I think is a really, really positive experience for kids. Yeah, that's cool. What what did you do for food? Did you have a month supply or did you get supply drops? We had a couple of different campsites. And okay. uh, initially for the group, there was a group of about six kids plus a crew leader plus a person from the park service. That's a small group to spend a whole month with. It was it was intimate. Three, you know, three guys, three gals, uh, and then our crew leader. And then the park service had a trail crew member who was assigned oh, cool. to our, that worked with us. And uh, they flew in the initial drop of gear and food. We had to backpack our own personal equipment and gear, but but the but the bulk of it got flown in by helicopter into the backcountry. And then for our second campsite, it actually got packed in by horses for that second portion. So just that in and of itself was pretty exciting to see a helicopter bring all of our, our gear on a sling load. In. Oh, that, yeah. I'd find that very cool. Especially as, I mean, even now, but especially as a high schooler, I just think everything seems more grand and exciting and adventurous. Yeah. My understanding is that One of the first places you worked in the park service was on the trail crew at Rocky Mountain National Park. And some folks who have listened to a couple episodes have reached out being curious of like how are trails maintained typically within national parks? Were you in that situation identifying new routes or were you more so maintaining and updating existing routes? Yeah, well, working on the trail crew was sort of a natural progression from that experience in the North Cascades with SCA because that's what I did for SCA. And so, you know, mostly painting existing trails. Occasionally we construct new trails. But most of our work is really focused on maintaining trails. And, and for people who aren't familiar with our trails, they might think that, why do you need to maintain trails? You know, they, you might sort of chuckle at that. But actually, a constructed trail does require routine maintenance in order for it to stay in good condition. And especially when you consider how many people use 
trails mm-hmm. and national parks. And so my focus in, in college was getting to work at Rocky Mountain National Park and the trail crew, which I like to say is the best job in the park service if you like to hike, which I do, um, because you get paid to hike every day with a chainsaw and a shovel. Wow. So just tons of fun, great camaraderie, you know, really, really good summer job. And and I learned a ton in it about working with people and, you know, getting to live and work in, in Rocky Mountain National Park was phenomenal as well. So it's a great, great opportunity for Yeah. I mean, when I've been hiking on trails, if you're, especially if you're farther into the backcountry, I mean, it just feels more and more impressive of like, how did people maintain these, build these, you know, I'm thinking of Glacier National Park has like pretty far out in the backcountry has like bridges across different streams and stuff like that. Um, And you know, it's not as easy as driving a truck or a tractor and bringing the wood and all of that. So I can imagine it was exciting and tiring. So it's good for an energetic college student. It was both. Yes, it was very hard work, but very rewarding and satisfying. And, you know, occasionally visitors would come by and thank us and just sort of express that amazement that you just did about like, wow, I can't believe you just built this bridge or, or um, you know, that kind of stuff. And, and that's always a, you know, a nice compliment. Yeah. You had mentioned when we were talking about some of the more unique situations you've had in the park service, you mentioned, I think it was discovering footprints in white sands from like 20,000 years ago. Can you share about what that means? <laughs> yeah, sure. I, I, um, when I was at White Sands, I was the superintendent there from uh, 2008 to 2011. And at that time, we discovered footprints in the dunes that had been um, exposed by shifting sands. The sands, sands at White Sands shift and, and move, and it's a very dynamic landscape. And our chief of natural and cultural resources um, literally was out in the field one day and discovered what he thought looked like a track set of human footprints. And so we were able to lead and usher in a a credible research program um, to to document those footprints, to understand them, to date them, to study them. And that has led to publication of numerous articles in peer-reviewed journals over the last 10 plus years about that trackways. And, and it's really sort of rewritten the story on, uh, on sort of human history in mm. North America. And, you know, the previous assumption was that people came down through the land bridge, through Alaska, and this is really questioning sort of that understanding. So it's really, really exciting because it's a, it's a very important discovery from a, from a human standpoint about human history on this continent. Yeah, that's cool. And kind of, you know, because you think of fossils and you're like, okay, that makes sense how it's maintained and stuff. And so to discover footprints that had somehow been protected and then exposed is really interesting. And I think it's cool that you got, like you said, that finding out this new information makes other things of like different timelines of human history put into question. Yeah, exactly. It's been sort of groundbreaking in scientific literature. And there's, as you can imagine, disagreement among some in the scientific literature, but really amazing. You know, White Sands was established to protect this dune landscape. And, you know, while I was there, we were discovering not just human footprints, but um, other trackways from other animals that, that date to 20 or 30,000 years ago. You know, woolly oh mammoths, for example, and, really? and things like oh, that. Cool. So, you know, really extraordinary that, you know, we protected this landscape at White Sands in the 30s, protect the dunes, and yet some of the most important discoveries are actually paleontological resources that are cut that place. And it just goes to show that there's there's always more in national parks than you might imagine at first blush. Yeah, you took the words out of my mouth of like, I think it also emphasizes the importance of preserving our landscapes. And yeah, there's more to each place than kind of what you just see at the eye level. Right. Um, So that's cool. I believe that this was during your time working in DC in the Office of Communications. 
but I saw that you had worked organizing some news conferences for the launch of the Island Explorer and the Acadia Trails Forever. Yeah. So when I was right out of college, I went to work in our Washington, D.C. headquarters, actually doing public affairs, press and news media relations. And so I had the opportunity in the summer of 1999 to come up to Acadia at the request of the park superintendent, Paul Hartel at that time, and help provide a a little bit of support and help in organizing a couple of news conferences that the park was having on the launching of the Island Explorer bus system, and also the endowment of the park's trails with Friends of Acadia. And both were major, major successes for the park. We were the first park, Acadia was the first park to have an endowed trail system that still stands today, that Friends of Acadia maintains and holds. And we also have an incredible Island Explorer bus system that is the largest transit system in the state of Maine when it's fully up and running. Cool. With the trail endowment, what does that mean? Does it mean that Acadia Trails Forever is the organization maintaining trails within the park? No. So the, the endowment is is money that Friends of Acadia holds. Okay. And then through that endowment, it's invested. It returns an annual uh, dividend, if you will, that right. we can then use in Friends of Acadia gifts to the National Park Service to accomplish trail maintenance work. So that helps to fund our trail crews here in the summer um, and keep our trails in good shape. You know, it doesn't cover everything in terms of our needs, but it does cover significant share of our of our annual trails funding needs. So it's really, really important. Very, very visionary to establish an endowment like that. And it's and it's really crucial. Right. You know, we have, I think, some of the most magnificent trails in terms of the quality of the construction in the national park system. We've got these trails there. In fact, our trails are listed on the National Register of Historic Places as being historic. So the, the entire trail system in Acadia is listed as being historic. And, and because of that endowment, we're actually able to maintain the trails, not just in a sort of passable or acceptable condition, but we maintain them to their historic standard. of And it's because of that trails endowment that we're able to pursue listing our trails as as historic. And so, for example, when the trail crew is looking at how a, a stream, how a trail crosses a stream, uh, they're, they're able to look at it for what it might have looked like in 1916 when the park was established and then reconstruct the crossing in that way rather than just, say, putting in a steel I-beam bridge with, you know, log facade on it. They're, they're doing a preservation treatment to right. those trails. And is that, I haven't heard of that actually, of trails being marked as historic what does that mean or refer to typically? Well, it's it's uh, so our trails are it's sort of a recognition of the fact that these trails are are historic. Um, it creates a little bit of sort of more care that we that we take in stewardship in those in those trails. We want to make sure that when we do any kind of maintenance or modifications to them, that they maintain that historic integrity. So it okay. it sort of causes us to do a little bit more work to make sure that what we do doesn't inadvertently sort of harm that historic integrity to those trails. And so that's important. And it also ensures, as I said, that we sort of look at these as how do we maintain the way that keeps that sort of historic integrity. So we were the first national park in the country to have really our whole trail system identified as being historic. And that was three years or so ago that that was approved for listing on the National Register of Historic Places. Are there... I guess it was only three years ago, so it's relatively new. But are there other parks since then that have had their trails registered as historic? And not that I've heard. Yeah, okay. not that I've heard. There are trail segments that are yeah. parks that are that are often identified as being historic. Right? A particular trail rarely is it as as comprehensive as Acadia is, and that's because you know a lot of our trails were established sort of in what we call the Rusticator era, where we had people coming here as second homeowners 
coming here for summers and they were um, creating trails in the park, creating trails to the top of the park's mountains, creating trails between the various communities. And that sort of era of development is partly what led to the creation of Acadia National Park as well. So, you know, that, that's where these trails date from is that sort of uh, late 1800s often uh, into the early 1900s before the park's establishment in 1916. Yeah, so I guess the trails were reflecting the people in that area's recreational use of trails or even like use for, like you said, getting between communities. And so it's right. cool to then get to go and hike or run those trails that had a historical significance. Yeah. It makes me think of a couple of years ago, my family, we got to do the Inca Trail in Peru. And oh, that's cool. like about a historic trail where some of the infrastructure of that trail, and I was actually thinking about this when you were talking about being on the trail crew in Rocky Mountain National Park, but it, it was so well constructed that some of it has, hasn't even had to be in fully updated or renovated, which you know, to think of how old they are and how many people go through those trails now, it's really impressive. Right. So yeah, that's cool. When you were working in the Office of Communication, I know hindsight can be 2020, but was there a part of you that ever thought you would be back at Acadia as its superintendent? I would say that's what helped me develop my love for the park. And even during that time period uh, that I was coming here for the news conferences, the superintendent had sort of floated the idea of trying to come up here to for a job. And mm. I was very interested and it. Didn't wind up working out. Yellowstone ended up hiring me before Acadia could. Um, and so I'm happy to happy to have gotten a chance now to, to be back here. Yeah, it maybe gave you, like you said, exposure to the beauty of the park to then when the spot opened up, however many years ago, and I think back in 2015, you had that context to be like, oh yeah, that's this right. would be a great role. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I know bef right before you were at Acadia, you were the deputy superintendent of Grand Tetons. Um, how was that transition between the two parks? I know that I think yeah, the... I'm not thinking of the right word, but they are quite different parks. I mean, I think that's the beauty of the park service is we have such variety in all of our parks. I'd love to kind of hear your thoughts of that transition and how you feel your time has been spent differently at Acadia versus when you were at the Grand Tetons. In many respects, they're they're similar. In other respects, they're different. You know, both parks were established by um, the Rockefeller family. Art. Really? And so they share that connection. And so... They have an uh, interesting sort of history with conservation and philanthropy. You know, both parks are in wonderful communities with very, very supportive friends groups. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we have Friends of Acadia. Grand Teton Park Foundation is also extremely successful and does a phenomenal job. You know, both parks play a very important role in their communities. You know, people live here because of Acadia National Park. People live in Jackson Hole because of Grand Teton. So, you know, in many respects, they're similar in other respects, they're different. We we are very much sort of embedded in the community in terms of our lands, you know, where mm -hmm. you can be in the park, out of the park, private lands. And whereas, you know, in the West, it tends to be sort of a more clear distinction between federal park lands or forest service lands, private land. So, you know, both parks have very challenging operations. They're among the most visited national parks in the United States. So, you know, they're both really exciting places to work. You know, I think my experience in Grand Teton and Yellowstone prepared me well here to Acadia. Yeah, that's cool. So I know you talked about the SCA Student Conservation Association and kind of the impact that had on your life and what led you to, you know, working in the Park Service. It looks like, or it seems like Acadia has uh, programs like the Youth Conservation Court and the Teacher Ranger program. Uh, I'd love to hear kind of your thoughts about those programs and if you feel like their purpose is similar to and offer similar experiences as the Student Conservation Association. Yeah, well, the Acadia Youth Conservation Corps is definitely very similar in some respects to the Student Conservation Association. They both provide great opportunities for young people to, to work here or work on our, in, in a park. So I think they're very similar. The Teacher Ranger Teacher Program is, is another program that gets teachers to be a ranger for the summer and then to take 
that and to take that back to their classroom then oh, uh, cool. in the fall. And so seeing teachers come here every year, you know, it's really inspiring for them. They inspire us because they come with lots of fresh energy and ideas. And so that's a that's a wonderful program as well. It's just a natural fit. And are those folks usually coming from surrounding Maine areas or is it anywhere within the US? Both. Yeah. So we get for both programs, we get we get participants from all over the country. We also get a lot of participants from Maine. You know, the Youth Conservation Corps requires we don't provide housing for that program. So uh, if someone's coming from outside the community, they have to maybe have a relative here mm. or someone that they can stay with to make that work because we don't provide overnight housing. The Teacher Ranger Teacher Program, we actually do provide housing. So that makes it a lot easier for somebody from a different part of the country to come here and, and spend the summer with us. And is that program unique to Acadia, the Teacher Ranger Teacher? It's not. It's actually a national program. Okay. Um, we've sort of done our own spin on it here at Acadia. So we've got some aspects of the national program that we've adopted, but others that we've kind of made our own. But it is a national. Oh, very cool. I can see. And this is, you know, applies to not just the Park Service. When I was working, I used to work at Google and it's similar of like, anytime you're new to a place, bring that like kind of new energy and optimism almost. And it is helpful for the folks who have been there longer because it's not that you're intentionally like not having that optimism, but you just kind of, I think, to get things done, kind of see the streamlined routes and stop putting energy into thinking of creative ways to solve a problem. Yeah. So I like that. We talked about some of the housing pieces and I've seen this actually across a lot of parks that it continues to be a challenge, but a, in a few interviews you've mentioned some of the challenges with workforce housing. What have you done and or hope to do to support the workforce housing in and around Acadia? Yeah, housing is a big deal for us. We we want to hire 150 to 175 summer seasonal employees. We only have beds for about 80 or so. Mm. And so, you know, there is no way someone can come to work here for the summer if we can't provide housing for them. There's just rentals are not available. You know, so much of the rental stock has been converted to short-term rentals like Airbnbs or VRBOs. And so it's impossible for someone on a, a seasonal salary yeah. to rent a place. And so we're working with Friends of Acadia, our Washington office to, to acquire funding to build new housing in Acadia National Park. I'm excited to say there's um, a development project underway right now that's being built eight beds, two housing units with eight beds that's being built by Friends of Acadia and will be donated to the park uh, when it's completed. So that's really exciting. We're also in design for additional housing units at another housing site in the park. And we hope to get that funded and into contracting to start getting built later this year. Oh, so wow. there's some really promising signs on the horizon uh, for housing, but it is a critical, critical need for us. And it's sort of an all hands on deck right now moment because as we're trying to sort of acquire the funding to get this done, it's sort of a once in a generation opportunity right now that, that we have, I think, to potentially put some new housing units onto the landscape for our staff and even our permanent employees. You know, at the cost of living that we've seen increase, yeah. um, our, our salaries have not kept pace with inflation. And so our year-round workforce, particularly our folks in entry-level positions, are having a really, really difficult time affording a place to live here. Yeah. And so it's really challenging, challenging issue that, that we need to solve through through employee housing. You had mentioned kind of a once-in-a-generation opportunity. Do you just feel it's because, is there like interest from Washington and partner organizations kind of acknowledging that this is a huge issue? Yes, Okay. Yes, there is. I think, you know, parks across the country are seeing housing as one of the top issues that they're facing. 
So it's not just Acadia. It's parks are all seeing these similar mm-hmm. kind of dynamics, whether you're at Rocky Mountain Stone or Yosemite or Grand Teton, where a lot of the stock around housing stock has been converted to short-term rentals. Prices have substantially increased. You know, there was the housing prices have increased, but the pandemic <laughs> made it easier for people to work remotely. So you had more people wanting to mm. live and work in these great locations, which I can't blame people, but that resulted in costs generally rise faster around national parks than elsewhere. Yeah. And so uh, it's just made it more and more difficult for our folks to be able to afford um, living here. For the projects you mentioned, are they for beds within the actual like park boundaries or are they in more of the Bar Harbor community? The beds that we're going to be building are within the park. And the majority of them are on a site where we already have employee housing. So we'll be adding to that sort of site with, with additional units. Yeah. And it's, I think, for Acadia and I think the park service in general, I mean, like you said, the pandemic enabled a lot of people to work remote, but then I think it also pretty drastically increased people's interest in going to the park. And it seems like numbers of visitors continues to rise. And so that makes it even more challenging um, because the more visitors you need, the more staff you need to support the park. Yeah. So I can definitely see where the all hands on deck tality is coming from. Yeah. Our visitation increased by about 71% over a 10 year time period. Wow. So, you know, we've seen visitation really explode here. We're a popular place and, and we're yeah. a great place. I can understand why. And Acadia, I lived in New York for four years and like Acadia is not that easy to get to, you know, it's like an eight or nine hour drive from New York. And so I think it just shows the beauty of the park that, you know, I drove up from New York to go and see it. And I guess like we could have flown and that would have been faster, but that's a big jump in visitation for sure. Yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah. It, cre- it creates a lot of challenges from an operational standpoint of trying to make sure we're giving great experiences for those folks, right. making sure though that our natural and cultural resources remain protected and intact. And so, you know, we've also seen the season lengthen. So more and oh, more people now yeah. are coming in our shoulder seasons, like May. Um, May never used to be very busy. Now we're seeing more and more people coming in May. You know, 15 years ago, September and October, things kind of wound down after Labor Day. Now things don't wind down until after Columbus Day or Indigenous Peoples Day. So, wow. And part of that's climate induced. You know, 30 years ago, May was a rainy month. I remember visiting Maine for the first time in the, in the 90s. And uh, it was May and I was backpacking in Baxter State Park and I actually camped in Acadia. And I think for the week we were here, it rained the entire week. Oh you know, I think we might have seen the sun once. Oh. And now, you know, now May is often a very delightful time. Yeah. yeah, I grew up in Austin, so I'm a bit of a baby when it comes to like a whole week of rain. I'm like, that sounds so scary. <laughs> and how does that affect the seasonal workers? Because historically, my understanding is the seasonal workers cover for most of the parks the summer, which is the busiest time. But as the season is expanding into May and into September and October, like a lot of those seasonal workers probably have to go back to school or, um, so how does that, how has that affected staffing? Yeah. A couple things, you know, it's like, as I said, I worked at Rocky Mountain National Park when I was in college and it was a, a good summer job that I could do between May and August right. when I had to, you know, go back to school. And so, uh, now that it's harder for us to work with that kind of a schedule because we need people to start often in April and then we need them to stay on with us until Columbus day or indigenous people's day. So, uh, that, that means we need them for a full six months. And so it's, it's harder to work with like a college student schedule. And we also can't uh, have people longer than six months and still be a seasonal employee. So oh, that's sort of another, there's sort of an administrative dynamic with it as well. Has it been challenging finding folks who can work for that six month period? Yes, especially for some career fields, you yeah. know, particularly in, uh, you know, the maintenance positions like custodial positions or people who might work on our roads crew, operate heavy equipment. Those are some of the most in-demand positions. Mm. 
that, that we have. And so if you know anyone who is interested in those <laughs> positions, we are constantly recruiting. Um, I'll be a referral pipeline. Yeah, yeah. Actually try up a sort of recruitment initiative to really talk about our, our career opportunities because they're great jobs. Yeah. They're fun jobs. They're rewarding jobs. Uh, they give you a great sense of service and satisfaction at the end of the day. Uh, but 30 years ago, we really didn't have to recruit. Right. 20 years ago, we didn't have came to, to us. And I think we're seeing that situation really reverse. Again, not just at Acadia, but at parks around the country. Part of that's the labor market. You know, labor mm-hmm. is short, just period in our in our country right now. And then part of it is is wages. You know, and and what we pay versus what some of the private sector positions pay around the park is is different. You know, candidly. Uh, uh, so those are those are headwinds for us. I have two thoughts from that. The first is with regards to ski patrol because um, I have a couple of friends who have worked in the ski patrol world, and they were saying a similar thing of like thirty years ago, it was. Really really, really, really hard to get a ski patrol position. And it's like, it's still really hard, but it's candidly like all of the ski towns are so expensive and the wages haven't reflected that. And so it's still a really prestigious job, but it's just not as many people are able to do that and take like, and it's, you know, a super rewarding, super challenging, super exciting job, but the labor market hasn't allowed people to be able to do that. Um, so I could see something similar um, with the park service. And then the second thing is, uh, I think at South by Southwest in Austin, so it's, I'm not sure if you're familiar with South by Southwest. Um, it's like a big conference and they have all these different tracks. There's like a comedy festival, film festival, but there's a civic engagement track and the National Park Service and the National Park Foundation are actually having a couple conversations at it. And one of them, I think it's like the CEO of the National Park Foundation, folks from the Park Service are having a candid conversation of like, what is the future? of the park service workforce employment look like and kind of acknowledging that I think the base the percentage of ages in the park service is getting older and it's like Mm -hmm. how do they kind of recruit that younger generation and acknowledging that that younger generation is really vital and important to the park but yeah just acknowledging like some of the struggles and kind of trying to brainstorm what is the future of the workforce employment look like at the park service yeah it's all right we're very much in the thick of that kind of in the similar realm of building and construction projects I saw that last February I believe Katie was awarded a contract to build new maintenance facilities what was that process of getting funding like and how has I guess you know it's almost been a year so how has that progressed or how is it progressing yeah so we've gotten funding to rebuild our primary maintenance facility at park headquarters through the great American outdoors Act, also known as goa and you know that is one of the most important laws we've seen get passed by Congress you know since the 60s signed to national parks because it funded the Land and Water Conservation Fund in perpetuity, which is the fund that provides money for land acquisition, but it also funded for five years a huge investment in addressing deferred maintenance across the National Park Service. And so mm-hmm. for Acadia, we got funding to, to rebuild our primary maintenance building, which is really the building that underlies everything we do here. You know, it's the building that houses our auto shops, our carpentry shops, a welding oh, wow. shop, a paint shop, storage, office space. It's really a complicated building, but a very, very important to everything we do. The project, we, we spent a couple of years in design for it, and now its construction contract has been awarded. It is underway. They're working on the foot, the foundation and the footings oh, of the cool. foundation literally as we speak today. Um, so it's really, really exciting to see that move forward. And, and it couldn't have been possible without the help of our congressional delegation. You know, yeah. they, um, 
Maine's congressional delegation played a very important role in getting the Great American Outdoors Act passed. And so we, we were sort of on the forefront with it. It's a critical piece of legislation. We've got only another two years of it left of the funding for deferred maintenance. After FY25, the, the law is scheduled to sunset for maintenance funding. So we're starting to think about, you know, what comes next because it really has been a, a critical investment for us. What does that mean? Is that specific for Acadia that that funding expires or is that across all parks? Yeah. So Great American Outdoors Act for, it actually applied not just to the National Park Service, but to the other federal land agencies as well. And so for the Park Service, it was about $1.3 billion for five years to invest in deferred maintenance. I see. So this is funding projects across the country, you know, projects here at Acadia, projects at Yellowstone and Yosemite, Grand Canyon. And so um, it's it's a groundbreaking degree yeah, of investment. That, I mean, what I keep just thinking in my head is like, you guys are busy right now at Acadia. Yeah, we are. <laughs> There's a lot going on. It is. I think this question can be hard to answer, but I, I do think it's exciting. And what led me to be doing these interviews is kind of understanding like what is a day in the life as a superintendent at specifically, I mean, in your case at Acadia. Yeah. Uh, it varies every day, Yeah, uh, you know, and that's, I think what makes it fun on Thursday of last week, we had had a major storm. I got to go out and see a shipwreck that had been oh, eroded. I saw an and, article about that. And, and came, yeah, and came, came to life at Sand Beach. And so, you know, and then, and then I went and surveyed storm damage that occurred elsewhere in the, you know, Today, I'm, I'm doing this interview. I've got meetings throughout the day about including thinking about design for the redesign of our primary visitor center parking mm. and how we have transit. So, you know, thinking about like really the next 30 years of the park and how we're going to move visitors through the park. And so it really varies. But the great thing is it really is an opportunity to, to sort of set a vision for the park and think about the future. Often, if I, if I worry about what's happening today, I think I'm not doing my job. I really have to be thinking about what's going to happen in Acadia for the next 10, 20, 30 yeah, years out. You know, yeah. We're in this business forever, so um, we have to have that long-term outlook. Yeah, that, that sentiment actually has been reflected by a lot of superintendents that I've talked to, and I think how it's encouraged them to be pursuing this type of role, because again, you're you're protecting it for the next 50, 100 plus years so that people can continue to enjoy the park. And I think that's a really cool motivator that you get to have in your day-to-day job. Yeah, yeah, it is. How has your vision? Because you've been at Acadia for a good amount of time at this point. How has your vision for the park changed, if at all? I think, you know, I don't know that it's changed as much as focus initially for me was really trying to get this transportation plan done, which led Mm -hmm. to vehicle reservations at Cadillac Mountain. We still have more work to do to implement that transportation plan. And so it's really about getting our sort of managing visitor use, so dealing with 71% increase in visitation, trying to ensure people have a really high quality experience and our resources are protected. That's been a, a major focus. Mm-hmm. And then I think the other major focus is sort of the back of the house, making sure our workforce is cared for, nurtured, mm-hmm. and that we're doing the things we need to do to make this a great place to work too. And so that that's employee housing. That's our, our maintenance building, for example, and trying to get those projects put into place and constructed so that that way we can, you know, because if we don't have the right people, if we don't have enough people, then we can't effectively uh, take care of the park and all the other aspects. Yeah, that's the, it's kind of the cornerstone of the park is to, to support it. I know you mentioned you like to go on a lot of like trail runs and stuff within the park, but is there a specific experience that comes to mind in terms of like your favorite experience you've had within the park? Oh, I, I'm also a skier, so. Oh, me too. Ski. I love skiing. I'm a Nordic skier and a downhill skier. Obviously, there's not downhill skiing in Acadia, but, um, you know, I would say if, if I had to pick, 
Um, I would go skate skiing on the carriage roads. What is skate skiing? Is that like cross-country skiing? Skate skiing is, is a type of Nordic skiing. You know, there's two types of Nordic skiing. There's classic, which is sort of back and forth with your feet. Right. And skate skiing is sometimes uh, where it's almost like a skating motion, like ice skating motion. And it's a faster, higher tempo kind of activity. So anyway, spending some time cross-country skiing, skate skiing on the carriage roads is probably, I would say, is among my favorite activities. It's one where I think there's... You know, we're seeing less and less winter these days, especially this season. We've had very little winter this season. Um, and so it's also, I think there's a recognition of just how finite it is. You know, I know. We go running 325 days of the year here, more or less, and have great running conditions. Skiing is fewer and fewer and fewer. And, you know, 50 years from now, there may not be any skiing in Acadia. And that's sad. I know. One of the big organizations I see a lot through LinkedIn and other things is POW, Protect Our Winters. And yes. it's along those lines. And I love skiing. I've got a couple concussions this past year, so I can't ski this season. Oh, <laughs> so no. I'm like, I'm like grieving. The, I've cr- cried to many friends about not being able to ski this season, but it's, it's so I can ski in the future um, is what I'm saying. But yeah, like I feel that fire in my soul or heart. Of, I just think skiing is like one of the most magical things. And it's really scary and sad when you think about, like you said, I mean, maybe in Utah, it'll take a lot longer, but to maybe think like in Acadia in 50 years, there might not be enough snow to ski. Is, yeah. yeah. That's sad. Yeah. Especially in places that have, you know, there's a strong sort of culture for winter here. Yeah. And it also is uh, sort of a loss of a piece of our culture. Yeah. Well, of what it means to have winter. I hope you guys get some snow soon and you can (laughs) get some skiing in this season at least. There's a little bit out there today. There may be enough to... Okay. Fingers crossed. I may try to find out at the end of the workday. Yeah. A way that I like to wrap up conversations is asking folks with regards to their specific park, what is something that you wish everyone knew about Acadia, regardless of have or have not been? You know, I think it's important for people when they come here to just, you know, do a little bit of research about the park, understand what what they want to see, what they want to do. You know, for example, like vehicle reservations at Cadillac Mountain. If you want to go to Cadillac, you're going to need a vehicle reservation in the south. But also understanding what people's abilities are and Mm -hmm. really being realistic about assessing those. You know, just in the last couple of days, we've had two rescues um, at night on the park's trails with people who are largely unprepared for winter conditions, for ice, for darkness, cold. And so, you know, really being honest with yourself about, is this the right trail for me? Is this the right activity for me? Do I have the right fitness for this? Do I have the right equipment? Do we have the amount of time that we need to do this hike? And so, you know, it's that pre-planning and really being thoughtful about, um, about a visit because, you know, this place has such great experiences to offer. We want people to have them safely. So their memories are positive. Yeah. I'm trying to think a couple parks, a couple parks are preventative search and rescue. Yeah, that's right. Is that the, have you, do you guys have that implemented or is that something you've thought about? Yeah, it's definitely something we are mindful of. And so we pr- try to provide a lot of visitor education around preventative search and rescue, trying to prevent search and rescues from happening in the first place. And we're actually trying to build up a, a larger program of park rangers that are really going to be focused on providing visitors visitor services mm. and trying to do preventative search and rescue. And then um, some of the first ones to respond when rescues do happen. So yes, it is definitely something that's on our mind. Uh, and Grand Canyon kind of started it and had, they have a, they have a great program there. Yeah. I, a lot of superintendents have said similar things to you. Uh, like a lot of the search and rescue operations are usually from folks being unprepared rather than folks who are like backpacking experts or, you know, doing the like crazy, right. like right. scaling mountains, climbing, ice climbing, all these things right. that seem really dangerous. But it's just, you know, I think in our society, when we're in our like urban cities, we can be caught unprepared and have much fear consequences. And so I think it's 
Um, yeah, I think that's a good reminder of like, yeah. <laughs> do your research. And it is a wild place. Even though there are a lot of people, you can be in situations where um, you're unexpectedly like blown and unprepared. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, everyone be safe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. We want people to have good experiences. Well, I know we're at the end of our time. I wanted to thank you for the conversation, just sharing. You've had a really exciting career within the park service and it's evident the way that you care about Acadia and all the places that you've worked. So Thanks for yeah. sharing a little bit of that. Well, thank you, Maddie. Thanks for sharing the story yeah, with others as well. I yeah. appreciate your interest. Yeah, thanks, Kevin. Thanks so much for listening today. Our music was composed by Danielle Bees. If you liked this podcast, rate, review, download, and tell your friends about it. This ensures the stories of our national parks and how they are run are shared. Listen to the other episodes wherever you listen to your podcasts or visit us at whorunsthispark.com to learn more. I'm Maddie Pellman, and you've been listening to Who Runs This Park.